Okay, so good morning, everyone. And um, I know you just had a, a meditation, but let's just take a few moments to make sure our mind is settled down in the present, the here and now. So any other thoughts in the mind that aren't related to what we are doing here, this sharing the Dharma event, uh, put those thoughts aside. You can always pick them up again later, but really try to keep your focus on what we are doing here to make the most of it. And you generated a positive motivation earlier, an altruistic motivation, wanting to be of benefit as much as possible to as many beings as possible, and made that your motivation for being here. So just take a few more moments to refresh that motivation. So I'd like to begin by saying Happy Father's Day to all the fathers. Anyone here a father? Yeah? Maybe some of the people watching as well are fathers. So today is Father's Day, and um, in Tibetan Buddhism, there's quite a bit of talk about mothers and the kindness of mothers. So there's, you know, teachings about this, and we do meditation on this in order to um, realize how much we have received from our mothers. And that's true for this life, as well as all our past lives as well. And the Buddha said, all living beings have been our mothers. And so this is a way of opening up our hearts to all living beings and appreciating them and wanting to benefit them. Um, but there's not that much talk about fathers, <laughs> and but fathers are important too. Um, without our fathers, we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't have this precious body, this precious life that we have. And so they make a very um, essential contribution to our existence. And in most cases, fathers also help with our upbringing. Um, we can't remember that early part of our life when we were infants and toddlers, but um, usually fathers are there as well, helping us, uh, taking care of us, feeding us, uh, playing with us, um, 
teaching us things we need to know to grow up. And um, and also in, in most, I don't know, most families, um, the father's the chief breadwinner, sometimes the sole breadwinner. That was the case in my family. And so that means the father goes out to work every day. And sometimes the work isn't always so pleasant. It could be physically hard or it could be mentally hard, like, you know, stressful. So um, spending that much time every day working just to provide the family with a roof over the head and food on the table and um, clothes and school fees and school books and medical bills and dental bills and so on and so forth. So um, the father plays in a really, really important role in our life. And it's important to um, remember that, to be aware of that, to appreciate that and be thankful to our fathers. And also because the Buddha said every living being has not only been our mother, but also our father. Um, this is one of the more challenging aspects of, of Buddhist teachings because it takes into account past lives that most of us can't remember. But um, yeah, so contemplating how all beings have been our fathers as well as our mothers is again a way of opening our hearts and feeling um, appreciation. And then that leads to compassion and kindness and altruism the wish to benefit others and repay the kindness that we have received from them. Um, So, yeah, once again, happy Father's Day to all fathers. And today is also Juneteenth. And this is something I never heard of until last year. And I thought I'd, I'd like to say something about it at the beginning of the talk today before we get into the book. Um, but I had to do some research because I didn't, <laughs> didn't know much about it. So I spent yesterday afternoon reading up on it. And um, so the official name, or one of the official names, I guess there's a few, is uh, Juneteenth National Independence Day. And so Juneteenth is an abbreviation of June 19th. And so on this day in 1865, um, a a Union general, Gordon Granger, arrived in Galveston, Texas, and informed the enslaved African Americans of their freedom after the Civil War had ended. So slavery was actually officially abolished two years earlier by Lincoln's um, Emancipation Proclamation, January uh, 1863. But the people in Texas didn't find out about it until two years later. (laughs) Amazing. (laughs) So they were, of course, extremely happy. So there was great joy and celebration on that day. And then... um, So African-Americans have been celebrating this day since 1866, starting with the the African-Americans in Texas. You know, they they started celebrating it. And then uh, black people in other communities heard about it and they started celebrating it as well. So it's, you know, it's it's been long known as an important holiday for um, black Americans. And then 
more recently, a few states made it a paid state holiday. Texas was the first in um, 1980. So it became a state holiday. And then last year, 2021, um, President Biden, Biden declared it a federal holiday. And in his statement, he said, um, I call upon the people of the United States to acknowledge and celebrate the end of the Civil War and the emancipation of Black Americans and commit together to eradicate systemic racism that still undermines our founding ideals and collective prosperity. So that's quite significant, you know, to, for it to become a federal holiday, <laughs> putting a lot of attention on this particular issue, and, and also just pointing to the fact that even though it's been more than um, almost 160 years since slavery was officially abolished in this country, there's still a lot of problems, a lot of racism and discrimination and issues that need to be solved. Um, so how is this day celebrated? So some places have picnics, street fairs, historical reenactments, uh, music festivals, and a Miss Juneteenth contest. <laughs> and I checked Spokane. Spokane had a, a whole lineup of events starting um, Friday night and going up until Sunday evening. And so they included a, a museum exhibit to celebrate and help all Americans learn more about the historic legacy of this important day in American history. So it's a bit late for us to join those celebrations. I also checked Coeur d'Alene, but there was nothing happening in Coeur d'Alene that I could find out. <laughs> Probably Newport as well. I doubt if anything's happening in Newport. But anyway, Spokane, it's good there's things happening there. Um, but even if we can't um, attend such uh, events, um, there's other things we can do, such as making ourselves more familiar with the history of black people in this country and as the issues and challenges they continue to experience even now. And so yesterday when I was um, searching, I found a whole website with different films that, that, that are free that you can watch. And I started watching one of them. In fact, it was called Freedom Summer. Um, I'd never heard of this before, but in 1964, um, a lot of students from all over the country, mostly white students, went to Mississippi to engage in a, a project to try to help voter registration because the black people in Mississippi were um, discriminated against in trying to register to vote. Um, so there's a lot <laughs> to, to learn. And there's also the wonderful film um, 13th, which I've already watched, but I'd like to watch it again. And that's still free. You can watch it on YouTube. That's really excellent. Um, and Just Mercy, another excellent film. So there's lots of films we can watch, and there's lots of books. Um, recently, I've been reading the book Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. A really amazing book. I'm only about a third way through, but I just learned a lot of things I didn't 
realized before. Um, one of the things she mentioned that I found interesting was that um, for European people, they didn't identify themselves as white until they came to this country. So people in Europe didn't think of themselves as white. But when they came to this country, where there was this very strong division of whites and blacks, to assimilate themselves into this um, this culture, this society, they took on that identity of being white. But yeah, it wasn't part of European <laughs> culture. And she also mentioned, she was once giving a lecture in um, London, and after the lecture, a woman from Nigeria came up to talk to her. And in the conversation, this Nigerian woman said, there are no black people in Africa. And Isabel was like, huh? <laughs> There's millions. <laughs> and the woman said, no, we are Igbo. And I can't remember, there was a whole list of different tribes and, and racial groups that they identify themselves as, but they don't identify themselves as black. So that's something to think about, you know, these, these whole concepts of white and black are something created in this country. And not for good reasons, not for an altruistic <laughs> reasons, but greed and and um, pride and arrogance and lots of afflictive emotions went into the creation of those identities. Yeah, so there's a lot to learn, a lot to learn about these issues. And um, and we can also support organizations that are working to end racism and injustice. I, I really I really appreciate the work of Brian Stevenson, which I found out in, about a number of years ago. He started the Equal uh, Justice Initiative, which is trying to um, right the wrongs in our prison system. So these are some of the things we can do on our own, even if we can't join uh, other celebrations. And so even though it's been almost 160 years since slavery was officially abolished in this country. We still have a long way to go to end racism and discrimination. And yesterday I got an email from um, Sen Senator Jeff Merkley of Oregon, because I used to have my official dress address in Oregon and I was registered there to vote as a Democrat. So somehow I got on his mailing list. But he's, he seems to be a really, really wonderful person doing a lot of good work. And so in this email, he says, it starts saying happy Juneteenth, and then goes on to invite everyone to honor this important day. And in the second paragraph, he says, our 13th amendment, which at face value bans slavery, still contains a sinister loophole that not only allows slavery to continue, but also perpetuates and preserves discrimination and mass incarceration to this day. To live up to our nation's ideal of justice for all, we must eliminate the slavery clause in the 13th Amendment, which still allows for slavery as punishment for crime. So I looked up the 13th Amendment, and indeed it says, um, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, 
whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. So as probably most of us know, even after the Civil War, many of the states, especially in the South, um, created these Jim Crow laws which uh, enabled them to put black people in jail for really minor, you know, crimes like showing disrespect or not showing respect. <laughs> and then once they were in prison, they could use this clause to um, put them back into slave-like situations, working on plantations or on the chain gangs and so on. Um, and so that was kind of the beginning of this in mass incarceration of black people, which even now, I mean, the Jim Crow laws have stopped, but you know, the statistics are there's five times as many black people as white people in prisons. And so, yeah, so Jeff says he and another congressperson, Representative Nikema Williams from Georgia, have introduced the abolition amendment to remove this damaging loophole from the 13th Amendment and finally end the practice of slavery in the United States in all its forms, once and for all. So let's hope they're successful in doing that. So in case any of you are wondering what this has to do with Dharma, <laughs> this is sharing the Dharma day. This is supposed to be a Dharma talk. But I think it's complete, it has everything to do with Dharma because the word Dharma, it's a Sanskrit word, and apparently it has quite a few different meanings. But in the context of Buddhism, when we talk about Buddha Dharma, the meaning of Dharma is protection from suffering. So that's what my teacher, uh, Lama Soparamashe, explained. Dharma is that which protects from suffering, which enables us to be free of suffering. And, and so, you know, the essence of Dharma is uh, teachings and methods for how to free ourselves from suffering and also how to help others be free of suffering. And in particular, the type of Buddhism we practice here, Mahayana Buddhism, that is our goal, is to um, relieve all sentient beings without exception from suffering. I mean, of course, that's a big job. <laughs> we can't do it all, all, all at once right away. But slowly, slowly, over time, that is our goal, is to bring an end to all forms of suffering for all living beings. And to be able to do that, we need to understand what kind of suffering there is. Of course, we have our own personal suffering, the suffering we ourselves have experienced in this life. So we know about that, and we know about the suffering of our friends and our family. But there's a lot of suffering that others experience that we haven't experienced ourselves. And so it's really important to keep our heart and our mind open and, and as much as possible, generate awareness, know about the suffering of others, understand their suffering, so that we can help them. If we don't understand their suffering, then we're limited in what we can do for them. So I think it's extremely important that we understand the suffering, the problems, and the causes of suffering, because that's the real key to end suffering, is to understand the causes of it. And Buddhism said, but says, you know, the main causes lie within our minds. Um, the afflictive emotions like ignorance and greed and hatred and, and so on. So all 
beings who, you know, are still in ordinary existence have these in our mind. We, the, we ourselves have them in our mind and others have them in our mind as well. And so that's how we eliminate suffering is by gradually decreasing and eventually eliminating completely these afflictive emotions in our mind. And so um, now Buddhism gives amazing tools for how to eliminate suffering and its causes, but still it's, it is important for us to keep our minds and our hearts open to understand the suffering of others, and then we're in a better position to be able to help them. Okay, so now let's um, go to the book. So I don't know if any of you are newcomers to this event, um, monthly sharing the Dharma Day, but um, we've been going through this book, which is called An Open-Hearted Life, um, and it's all about compassion, both from the perspective of Buddhism as well as Western psychology and in particular, a form of psychology known as compassion-focused therapy. And the earlier parts of the book talk about compassion in general, what it is, and also how to develop it. And now we're on a part of the book that is called Compassion and Connection. And it goes into how to bring compassion into our relationships and our interactions with others. And this is so important. I'm really glad this is included in the book because, and I've been in Buddhism for a long time, and you know I know all the teachings on compassion and all the methods for developing compassion, and I'm working on those. But then when it comes to enacting our compassion, bringing compassion into our interactions with others, that's often very tricky especially if the other person isn't compassionate <laughs> and they are lacking in compassion and maybe they have um, anger, they have fear, they have all kinds of other um, uh, emotions going on in their mind. Um, you're trying to deal with them in a compassionate way, but sometimes it, it's very tricky, very difficult. So it's great that there are chapters in this book about how to do that. And the last chapter that we went through was uh, number 50, about apologizing and forgiving. Yeah. So these are really important issues that we all have to know about and deal with. So we're now on chapter 51, which is called Giving Positive Feedback and Praise. So it says, far too often we pay so much attention to unpleasant situations that we forget to notice and comment on happy ones. Um, I don't, we, here we don't have TV and not many opportunities to listen to the radio. And I haven't, you know, done that for years and years and years. But what I've heard is there's a lot of negative talk on TV and news and radio. Is that true? That's your experience? You know, <laughs> very critical and, and uh, yeah, stirring up anger and, yeah. So it's, it's, it's important to be aware that the things we listen to or the things that we watch, um, TV and radio and news and so forth, we, they do affect us. And so it's good to 
try to pay more attention to positive news, good news, rather than only exclusively, exclusively um, the negative news. Because I think most of the news that's reported is bad news. You know, all the murders and all the wars and all the corruption and so on and so forth. You really have to look for good news. But it is important to do that. Otherwise, we can get a very lopsided view of what's going on in the world and um, what human beings are doing and so on. So there is actually a lot of good out there. It's just not reported on the news. <laughs> so here it's it's saying we need to talk more about the good things that are going on. And so it says, talking about what is going well and what we appreciate about others is very important. And it's a good skill to train ourselves in. Sometimes we have to remind ourselves to do this. For that reason, I, meaning uh, Tupton Chudran, uh, often, ask, often assign the people who attend my classes on Buddhism homework and the homework is every day they should praise at least one person to their face and praise at least one other person behind their back. So how often do we do that? <laughs> I have to confess. <laughs> well, right now I'm spending most of my time alone, so I don't have too many opportunities <laughs> to praise somebody to their face or even behind their back telling somebody else. But I certainly agree that this is a good thing to do. So she goes on to say, this is a particularly good assignment to practice in a workplace environment as it can help alleviate any negative energy there. It can also prevent others from ganging up on and scapegoating another person. Is that your experience that in workplace environments... Um, people can gang up on and scapegoat one of the people. Yeah, it's been a long time. Sorry, <laughs> sorry it's been a long time since I've been in that kind of situation, and I don't remember very well. And I don't think, yeah, I don't think I had too many bad experiences. But I've heard, I've heard stories, so it can sound pretty awful. What kind of things happen? You nodding your head. <laughs> Well, this is kind of extreme, but it was in a more firefighting situation. So it was a lot of guys and they were just picking on the weak guys and making them do really ridiculous physical things just so that the one that was getting picked on would try to prove himself that he was worthy to hang out with people. Mm -hmm. They tried to get me to do it. And I was like, no way, you guys are stupid. <laughs> but <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and even if you do try to um, not go along with that or protest or get them, then then you can be the victim. You can be the person that, that gets picked on. Yeah, very sad. Yeah, so if we can develop this habit of uh, being aware of people's uh, good qualities and the good things that they're doing, and try to express that directly to the person and also talk about that to others so that others will also pick up on that way of seeing things, that way of seeing people. I mean, we do that here in the Abbey. Um, 
every morning, almost every morning, uh, the community gets together for a stand-up meeting where we stand in a circle and um, somebody will start with a motivation for the day. And then we go around and each person first says something they're happy about, something they rejoice in. And sometimes it might be, oh, it's a nice day, nice weather. <laughs> but often it's rejoicing what another member of the community has done. Like yesterday, oh, so-and-so cleaned up the bathroom or cleaned up a mess somewhere or did something particularly beneficial. So mentioning that to the rest of the community, that's this kind of thing, you know, pointing out a positive trait or a positive action that somebody has done and um, gets everyone, everyone has the opportunity to be happy about that, to rejoice in that, to feel admiration for that. So it's a really beautiful thing to do. So she says, the more we express our happiness and satisfaction about others' behavior to them, the better both of us feel. Now, so we feel good expressing those things. And of course, the person uh, we're expressing it to will feel good as well. And then she goes on to say, uh, giving positive feedback is not just saying thank you or you're very good. In fact, those expressions don't really give the other person much useful feedback. So often when we praise children, we say, you're a good boy or girl. That only tells the child that we're pleased, but they don't necessarily understand why or how they have made us happy. But if we say, thank you for picking up your toys, now I can walk across the room without fearing I'm going to trip. That allows the child to know exactly what behavior we appreciate. Then, because everyone likes to receive positive feedback, the child will do that again. And she talks about how that's important to do in our communication with adults as well. So communicating appreciation to adults is similar, and we do so by telling the person the specific action they did and its positive effect on us. For example, a department manager may say, thank you for turning in the report on time. It gives me the opportunity to think about and plan the next step. We can also give praise by sharing our good feelings and met needs. For example, saying, I'm grateful for your filling in for me at the meeting. I appreciate the support and camaraderie. Or thank you for calling to say you are going to be late. I appreciate that you gave me notice because it allowed me to catch up on some other work while I waited. Sometimes we don't even need to speak to communicate appreciation. Nonverbal communication can be very powerful. A kind smile, a nod, or silently mouthing the words. <laughs> When um, someone does something we appreciate, can communicate volumes. Training ourselves to let others know about the beneficial effects their words and actions have had on us increases our joy in life. We feel better when we have kind thoughts about others. 
It also reinforces our awareness of others' kindness, increases our sense of closeness to others, and strengthens our awareness of good in the world. These, in turn, make our love and compassion more heartfelt and enrich our lives. So I found it really helpful a number of years ago when I I was reading the book called Buddha's Brain by Rick Hansen. And so he's a neuropsychologist as well as a meditation practitioner and teacher. And so in this book, he's he's kind of talking about meditation and other Buddhist ideas using the language of, of neuroscience and neuropsychology. And one of the things I found really helpful was he explained how neuroscience discovered that our brain has a negative bias. And um, what that means is um, the way our brain works, we pay more attention to negative um, information, like threats or dangers or unpleasant things. And they they believe this is because our early ancestors needed to do that. They needed to pay attention because there were dangers. There were tigers and hostile neighbors and so on. So they really, you know, just to survive, they had to be super alert and super aware of dangers. Whereas paying attention to positive information like, oh, a beautiful sunset or a beautiful butterfly wasn't crucial to survival. <laughs> so those parts of the brains didn't didn't get developed so much. And so he said that our brain, I mean, the view is the brains we have now are um, hardwired to operate in the same way as the brains of our early ancestors. So he says our brains are like um, uh, Teflon for positive information, positive experiences, and like Velcro for negative ones. So when we have any kind of negative uh, information or negative experience, it just sticks in our in our mind or in our brain, whereas positive ones just kind of slide right off. We don't they don't stay so much, and as a result of this, you know, we can develop kind of a negative view of ourselves and others and the world and what's going on around us and so on. And it's it can become very hard for us to see the positive side of people and the positive side of things. So I found that really helpful because I could certainly identify with it. It was definitely my experience. <laughs> and to know that, oh, it's got to do with the way my brain is working was was very helpful. And then he also gave advice on how to change this because the brain is plastic. There's neuroplasticity. So we don't have to just live with our brain in this way. We can change it, which is, of course, total, totally what Buddhism says as well. We can change our mind, change our experiences. And so this is one way to do that is to make a, a deliberate attempt to focus on positive things and 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 stay his advice is you know focus on positive experiences and stay with those positive experiences for at least 5 seconds <laughs> the more the better but at least 5 seconds don't just you know immediately switch to something else um and in that way it actually brings about changes in the brain so we will be more aware of positive experiences and we'll be more happy as well it definitely does bring greater joy into our life and helps us have a more positive outlook on 
ourselves and people and the world and so on. So, so what you know, the advice here in this book is is totally in line with what neuroscience says. The importance of increasing our positive experiences. So that's the end of the chapter. <laughs> it's a very short chapter. And then there's a reflection. Um, so this is like homework you can do. Um, think of someone whose words or behavior influences you a lot. It may be your boss, a colleague, your spouse or child, or a neighbor. Train yourself to be on the lookout for things they do that are helpful to you, whether or not they do these actions with the intention to help you specifically. Now, so people don't always have the intention to do things that are helpful to us, but, you know, some of the things they do are still helpful. When you notice a helpful action, comment on it to them stating what they did, how you felt, and the benefit you received from their action. Notice the positive effect that your words have on them. Notice your feeling of pleasure when you bring happiness to others. So let's just pause here and contemplate this, reflect on this. And um, this is advice that you can bring into your life to develop this habit, this tendency of noticing positive things about others and positive things that they do, and then expressing that, giving positive feedback. So you can close your eyes and bring to mind someone you know whose words or behavior um, are quite important to you. So like she says, it could be your boss, a colleague, your spouse, a child, or a neighbor, or a friend. Somebody important to you, somebody important in your life. Now bring to mind something that that person has done already, could be in the recent past or further back in time, something that they did that was helpful for you, whether they intended to help you or not. It's something that that person did or something that person said that was helpful for you. Now, imagine yourself telling the person that that 
action they did was helpful. And add on why it was helpful. Don't just say, oh, thank you for doing that. That was really helpful. But be more specific. How is that helpful to you? And then see if you can notice, although we're just doing it on the level of imagination now, how it feels to make this expression, to tell this other person what they did that was helpful and why it was helpful. So how does that make you feel? Also notice if you find any internal resistance or difficulty, challenges to doing this kind of thing. Is it something hard for you to do? And try to understand why it's hard. What are the reasons, causes, conditions? And if you can recognize the reasons it's hard for you to do this kind of thing, see if you can think of ways you could overcome those difficulties so that you can start to do this kind of um, activity more in the future. Like, for example, it could be maybe you're shy or it's something you just don't have much experience in doing. But there are ways we can overcome that. For example, with shyness, we can start doing this kind of thing with people we're close to, people we feel comfortable with, before doing it with people we're more distant from.
And recognizing how this kind of communication is good for ourselves, it makes us feel better, and it's also good for others, makes them feel happy, and can help us just have a closer relationship with the other person. So if we can recognize those benefits, then we might be more likely to try it, even if it's a little difficult. Any questions or comments about that particular topic? When I receive praise, I notice arrogance arises very easily. So how to prevent that from happening? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a tricky thing. And in fact, that might be one reason for withholding praise and positive feedback if we're worried that the other person might be get big-headed and arrogant. Um, so how to prevent oneself becoming arrogant when receiving praise? Um, what, I, what I do um, is to remind myself, like I, I tend to get people positive feedback for like the books I've written. People come up and say, oh, that book, I love that book. It's been so helpful for me or a teaching that I've given. And so, yeah, I have this concern as well. I don't want to get proud and <laughs> conceited. Um, so I just remind myself that what you know, whatever I wrote in the book or whatever I talked about in my teaching came from my teachers. Yeah, it's only because I've been very fortunate to meet wonderful teachers in my life and learned from them. And so whatever I'm, you know, writing about or talking about is just repeating what I've learned from them. And then, of course, going back to the Buddha. So all the uh, masters of the past, starting from the Buddha up until the present. So I'm just, you know, repeating what I've learned. And so it's like passing the passing the praise to others. <laughs> um, so the same with anything, you know, whatever. Because like when we think about how we were when we first came into this world, right? It's good to do that meditation, you know. We can't, rem- most of us can't remember that time in our life, but we've seen little babies, you know, and they're just these tiny little balls of flesh, Naked. I mean, really, yeah. When we come into this world, we're naked. We're just covered with all the, all this fluid from our mother's womb. Um, but we have nothing, you know? We're empty-handed. And we can't do anything. We can't even do the most basic things, like feed ourselves or move, move ourselves around. And knowledge-wise, we didn't know anything. <laughs> so everything we have now all the knowledge we have, all the abilities, all the skills, and also all the material things we have, whatever 
money or possessions we have, it's all from others. It has all come to us from others, starting with our parents and other people who looked after us and then our teachers and so on and so forth. So I find that meditation really, really helpful to contemplate whatever I have, whatever I know, whatever I'm able to do is due to others, the kindness of others. So that's very helpful to overcome arrogance. Any other ideas? Um, There is also the opposite. There are a lot of people, a lot of us, that are not very good for taking compliments or, you know, good words. Um, And then if you are in front of a person like that and you care about that person and you tell them what a good thing they've done and because they're not so good at taking compliments, they go like, oh, okay, yeah, that's good, fine. So that also could feel like a rejection uh, and then in the future you might not be so inclined to thank people for what they do. It kind of creates an awkwardness or something like that. How would you go about that? Or what do we do? So you as the one giving the praise or giving the feedback, how to deal with that kind of reaction in people. Yeah. Well, um, I would say that it's good to try to understand why the person is um, reacting in that way. Um, Like you say, it could be, I don't know, it could be a number of reasons, maybe low self-esteem, or maybe they are worried about becoming proud and arrogant. They don't want to go in that direction or I don't know, whatever. So you could just try to try to understand the other person and why they're behaving that way. And, um, and don't take it personally if they do respond in that way. You know, try not to take that personally as a rejection of yourself um, and your words understand that giving positive feedback is still a good thing to do and it's good for them and maybe over time the person will change maybe they will become more open and more accepting maybe that's exactly what they need is to hear more positive feedback and and that will slowly help them realize you know if they have a negative view of themselves Um, I'm a horrible person, I don't deserve this kind of um, compliment, it's not true. If that's the view they have of themselves, then the more praise they get, then that will wear down and there's a greater chance that they would, you know, come to see themselves as okay. Because that's, I mean, I can relate to that myself. I used to feel extremely uncomfortable when people would compliment me or praise me because internally there's this voice saying no it's not true i'm not like that how can you say that you know <laughs> like yeah and so the way i would respond to such praise was probably like like you're saying you know just oh it's not no brushing it off rather than being open and saying thank you and so but i could see over time and also with a great deal of help from <laughs> buddhist teachings and buddhist meditation and um, 
you know, I've come to recognize that, yeah, having a negative view of oneself is completely unrealistic and counterproductive and needs to be changed. And so I've been working on that. And so now I'm at a point where I don't react in that way, you know, and and I also, <laughs> um, I'll just tell you a personal anecdote. Um, in 1989, I went to Singapore. Um, my teacher sent me there to be a teacher in a Buddhist center. And um, one of the things I found really challenging there was people's respect. <laughs> People, I mean... Sometimes it felt extreme, you know, people, as soon as they see me, you know, would start bowing and prostrating to me. And I was like, no, don't do that. You can't do that. I don't deserve that. You know, I try to get people to stop doing that because I was just so uncomfortable. And they would insist, you know, no, we want to. Because these are people who are raised in a Buddhist culture, Buddhist, you know, Buddhist environment, and they have that respect for people wearing robes for Buddhist monks and nuns. And so my initial reaction was, like you're saying, you know, no, 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 don't, I don't deserve that, don't do that. But then I, then I thought about that, and I thought, but actually, what they're doing is a good thing. You know, it's good for them to feel respect and to show respect. Um, and it's not about me, but it's about what I represent, you know, Buddha's teachings and Buddha's practice. And and so I shouldn't, so I realized it would be wrong for me to stop them from doing that. <laughs> yeah, that's like stopping them from doing something positive, constructive, virtuous. And so I, you know, what I would do is I, you know, allow them to show that respect. But then I would think in my mind, I'd sort of imagine the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas around me and pass the respect onto them. That's where this respect is going. So anyway, I'm just telling that as a story about how I dealt with that particular problem. It's still, you know, uncomfortable for me to have this kind of show of respect, but um, now I'm trying to take the I out of it, the self, the big I, the big ego out of it, and just think more in terms of um, people. It's good for people to be able to recognize goodness in others and express goodness in others. And I don't want to stop them from doing that. So I don't know if that's helpful for you or not, but yeah. Yeah. It's actually very helpful, um, the anecdote, because what I am hearing is that you're saying that it takes some humbleness to be able to accept compliments. And that's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so we have to find some middle way between being proud and arrogant and think, oh, somebody's complimenting me. That means I'm wonderful. We don't, you know, that's one extreme. But then this other extreme is, it's not real humbleness. It's not real humility. It's almost like a perverse kind of pride, you know, where I'm actually, yeah, I mean, actually, I do have a lot of pride, but I'm afraid of people showing me respect because I don't know, there's a lot of complicated things going on there. But somewhere in the middle is just, okay, I'm just, I just am, and I have, there are good qualities in me and good things I'm doing in my life, and if somebody notices those and shows respect to those, that's a good thing for them. 
and I can just take the I out of it. <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, I'm still not completely there, but I can see that's the place to be. It's like I see the Dalai Lama, he's my hero. <laughs> and I mean, when he gives a teaching or wherever he goes, you know, there's just tens of thousands of people, you know, crowding to see him and get close to him and showing this incredible respect for him. And he's just kind of cool about it and, you know, <laughs> just shows this warmth and friendliness. He doesn't run away from it, nor does he, you know, show pride about it, you know? He just loves people and he just uses those kind of situations to bring joy and happiness and benefit to people. So for me, that's like a really good role model where I would like to be, where I would like to get to one of these days. Something I've learned very helpful from nonviolent communication, which I think is in that chapter, about both giving and receiving compliments you know, a praise and appreciation, because I'm a little bit also kind of defensive about it. And and what I've come to understand about my own way of hearing is if someone says to me objectively, you are anything, you are angry, you are really kind, you are, as soon as I hear that kind of objective judgment from somebody, I'm, I, I, I don't trust it immediately, right? But when someone says to me, oh, what you said really touched my heart, then that's a personal thing that they're sharing about something I did, and I have a completely different reaction to it. So I'm, I'm trying to make my appreciations also personal to explain that this, this, yeah, this, this touched me in this certain way, and this is how I feel, rather than try to tell people who they are. That's the mm. way I read it. Mm. You know, and I have my own trip about that. So that's, but, but it's harder. You have to think harder. Yeah. Like, why did that move me so much? Then I have to be able to express that. So it, but I find that I know I am more receptive when I hear things that way. And it appears that it lands more easily with others when I deliver it that way too. Yeah. Cause the examples here in this chapter are, you know, like that rather than you're a good girl. But what a specific thing that you did that was helpful and why it was helpful. So that's like really educational, informative to the other person and easier for them to take it. You know, then I feel seen, mm -hmm. not just judged. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it does seem like a skill, <laughs> a skill to learn and develop and practice to get good at. Well, we've come to the end of our time. So... We can stop here.